Well, I uh, really, really excited to be here. We are in uh, travel mode here in Philadelphia um, and trying to work with whatever we have possible. And uh, I'm very excited about your book because my entire life has taken a shift over the power of mindfulness and, you know, your understanding of mindfulness in your newest book, Good Morning, I Love You, Mindfulness Plus Self-Compassion. Uh, <laughs> We're having compassion for whoever's phone that was, so don't worry. That's it. Self-compassion practices to rewire your brain for calm, clarity, and joy. Um, I call it uh, clearing the interference between what we already are and everything else. Uh, for you, what has been the journey and your awareness to mindfulness and the impact that it's had to, to me, write such an impactful book? Mm, thank you for that introduction. Um, for me, I was introduced to mindfulness when I was quite young. I was 17 and I had spinal fusion surgery. So I went from a healthy, active teenager to lying in a hospital bed, unable to walk. And it was during that time of really significant physical pain, but but really it was my mental anguish that, that was causing the suffering. And that's when I discovered mindfulness. And it offered this pathway out, this kind of sense of hope that my life wasn't always gonna be this way. And so eventually as I healed, I ended up going to Thailand and Nepal to study in the monasteries there. And the peace that I experienced was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. So when I came back, I got my PhD and became a professor. And I've spent the last 25 years studying the scientific kind of underpinnings of mindfulness and meditation so that we can help other people. Dave, you probably don't know this, um, I looked at Shauna's video back in 2017 when my appendix burst and it was her and Joe Dispenza by, I, I just crazy before you got on, I was like, oh my God, I was watching your TED talk that helped me reframe my perspective when I was going through the septic shock and the doctor said I had a 1% chance of healing and not getting colon cancer. I didn't remove my colon. And the greatest thing that she did in this TED talk is she would always go back to like, yeah, I'm crazy. And yeah, I want to go crazy at people in traffic. That's why I practice mindfulness. And she just kept it so simple and just so unique and just spot on. And she's just, it was just unbelievable. She just helped save my life in one way. Wow. You have yeah. a question? You have a question for as well? Let me ask you this. Did you feel if you didn't go through the spinal surgery, you would be where you are today. Did the adverse, adversity got you where you were, correct or not? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's it's such a hard question to answer because I don't want to say to people that are suffering, well, you need to go through this in order to get to a different place. I worked for a long time with women with breast cancer. And whenever someone would say to them, you know, this is really a gift, you know, you just wanted to punch them in the face. So I wouldn't say that. <laughs> but, but I do think for me, I had never known a contentment that I experienced through the meditation practice. And I, you know, I was on a different life path. I was homecoming princess. I was star of the volleyball team. I was going to Duke University on a scholarship. And all of a sudden I was lying in a hospital bed and never going to play volleyball again. And yet the happiness and the peace that I've found since is, I don't even think it was in my, you know, my rubric of what was possible. So, yeah. 
Mm, absolutely incredible. You know, so much of what you're saying relates to, to everything that I'm living through now. And, you know, that all came from a place of uh, discomfort or unhappiness years ago where I thought I had everything that the world told me would make me happy and ultimately found out that I wasn't. And I was looking for somewhere to take my wife for her 40th birthday. I was going to take her on a very special trip around the world. and I just couldn't find something. And a friend said, you have to come to Philadelphia where we happen to be right now. Uh, there's a world-renowned uh, meditation specialist and expert who is giving a three-day seminar. And so I said to my wife, we're going to go on a journey inward. And it ended up being the best thing in my life. And so I've been on this just journey of mindfulness and meditation. For the people that are listening for the first time and hearing the word mindfulness now, we, we hear it a lot. Can you just give like a layman's or laywoman's overview of what mindfulness is so people can understand? Yeah, thank you. It, because mindfulness, I think, has become so popular that we don't even really know what it means anymore. So I will give you a very simple definition. It means paying attention with kindness. And the kindness part is really important. People tend to overlook it and they're like, oh, mindfulness is just about being present. But that's not accurate because if you're just present, what you're going to notice is you're tending to judge. And if we're judging our experience, which we always are, and we're judging ourselves all the time, what happens is it shuts down the learning centers of the brain and it keeps us stuck. And so the key to mindfulness and how it leads to transformation is where you're kind with yourself, just like Mike was saying. So you're not perfect. What you're noticing is when you get frustrated or angry, or I mean, I have four teenagers, so <laughs> trust me, I'm not peaceful all the time. And then you're kind with yourself in that moment. You say, oh, sweetheart, that's not how you want to act. Or can you take a deep breath and be more patient? But if I start shaming and judging myself, my learning center shut down. I go into fight or flight response and I actually can't change. I get stuck in the very thing I don't want to be. And so this kindness piece is really important. It's so interesting that you say that because studying Shauna, thoughtfulness itself, not mindfulness, but thoughtfulness, and then also the speed of light. And, and why I utilize the speed of light is that uh, so many people have difficulty reconciling mindfulness, thoughtfulness, with the speed of light, the time that it takes from a particle of light to get to the earth, 186,000 miles per second or so, uh, that has created the clock, the 24 hours of activity that we're given each day. And it's interesting that you use kindness because that's a superpower that I try to utilize as much as I can, obviously spending minutes or moments in the unconscious competencies of the ego-based consciousness that creates the interference between thoughtfulness and, and the construct that I live in. But to use kindness uh, also as the actual transformation tool to transform the higher power of thinking, the truth, or the closest we can come to it, our best selves, our potential, into activities. Uh, I have three teenage daughters and 11-year-old, so I totally understand spending minutes and moments in ego-based consciousness, fight, flee, fight, or <laughs> other, other methodologies of interference. Um, in more layman terms than even kindness, because it sounds a lot of times very unrealistic that here's Sean and David and Mike and Mike, that we use kindness as our superpower and kindness is more than just an awareness. It's the actual practice of getting back to center or neutral. How else can you articulate kindness itself? Because some people would say doing good deeds is kind and other people see kindness in a different respect. What is that superpower? Because I think it's really important not only to know what mindfulness is, but what kindness is as well. 
Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's so important to take these ideas from theory into practice. So for me, kindness has these kind of two qualities. One is there's a warmth. And for me, it's physical. So when I'm working with my patients or my students, I have them actually put their hand on their heart and you can try it with me now and just take a moment to even notice what that feels like. And there's a sense for some people where it's warm and soothing and other people it's awkward and uncomfortable. So whatever it is for you. And that brings me to the second element, which is this sense of curiosity. So you can take your hand off your heart you want, or you can leave it there. It releases oxytocin. It's actually good for you. But there's this sense of curiosity where we bring warmth, but then we're also interested in what is my experience? Maybe right now it feels uncomfortable. And so kindness includes this kind of welcoming attitude where we don't have to feel happy or peaceful or perfect. Kindness allows whatever we're feeling to just be here. If you can imagine like your ideal parent and you can bring them anything, you know, if you skin your knee or you got a bad grade or you, you know, just won the tournament, you, you, the, the parent celebrates and is present for you. And that's what we need to learn how to be to ourselves, whatever is happening. That's awesome. Someone starting off, Shauna, um, that's watching at home, that's like struggling just to sit still and just with all the information flooding in, what's the first thing that you would suggest them to do, whether it's a walking meditation, sitting practice, what would you suggest? So the first thing is the breath. It's the easiest tool. It's always here. And just physiologically, when you start to focus on your breathing, it naturally becomes deeper and calmer and more rhythmic. And when that happens, it activates the vagus nerve, which puts us into this restorative parasympathetic state. So we can use the breath to regulate our nervous system. The other thing I would say to people, and I think this is so important, is that whatever you practice grows stronger. And so to be really aware of what you're practicing, because for me, this is kind of the most hopeful message there is, is neuroplasticity, that whatever I practice is growing. And so to realize that in any moment you can begin again, you can carve out a different pathway, even in the midst of fear or loneliness or anxiety, you can bring your kindness and your curiosity. And all of a sudden you stop that path and you start down a different way. And for me, that's been, the most important teaching is that I can begin again in every moment, that it's never too late. I've never missed my chance. I've never made too many mistakes, that there's always hope. There's always possibility. And it's not this kind of lofty spiritual ideal. It's actually grounded in science. Mm. You can always reset. Sorry. Yeah. 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 They think they say, Sean, is it the thoughts that fire together, wire together, right? And mm -hmm. we can start to build that. I, there's a question from the audience that says, but is happiness constant thought? Isn't happiness a choice while joy is surprise and random? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So the way I view happiness, and, and I do think there's this kind of this contentment, and then joy is more of a, a momentary thing. But I think there's a certain contentment that can be relatively continuous and not based on external factors that your happiness is, and in fact, the science shows that the, the, the research on happiness set point is really clear that if you win the lottery, you have this initial blip of happiness. One year later, you go back to your baseline. If you're in a terrible accident and you're paralyzed for life, you have a drop of happiness, but then one year later, you also go back to your baseline. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of surprising, right? We think like 
if you have all these successes or you win the lottery, it should improve your happiness. But what we've learned from the research is external factors don't influence your happiness levels. It's really internal factors. And that's why these practices of mindfulness and compassion and kindness, they actually start to rewire or re-architect the very fabric of our consciousness towards greater happiness, towards greater peace. And that comes from the inside. Wow. I wish I had more time because my next question, and we're going to have you back, is how do we readjust the internal quantum memory, the internal thermostat that we have so that we can increase uh, the plateaus or the baseline of happiness, uh, understanding that not just happiness, but our other internal energetic and genetic inheritances that we've you know, received uh, determine how much money we make, how worthy we feel, how healthy we are. Uh, all of these different things uh, are determined as an energetic and genetic inheritance, which creates a baseline, like you said, uh, that will reset itself. But I want to get next time into a conversation about how to uh, reset our thermostat to something higher, to increase, as you said, expand, grow, and accelerate uh, that new baseline so that we can learn more and uh, experience even more happiness or wealth or worthiness or health. Uh, Shauna, thank you so much. You're an incredible guest. Uh, everyone, check out her newest book, Good Morning, I Love You, Mindfulness Plus Self-Compassion Practices to Rewire Your Brain for Calm, Clarity, and Joy. Uh, check out her TED Talks, of course, as well, and uh, which is The Power of Mindfulness, which saved my diamond's life. That's right, Mikey Diamond. You uh, were ever indebted for your great inspiration. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thank you, Thank you all. Bye. Bye, Bye. Amazing. Awesome. Yeah. I, gosh, I'm glad we got that through. I wasn't sure, but it's, it's funny that we we're here at Mindspace and we got the Mindspace and all of a sudden Sean is on there. It's like perfect branding uh, for what we're doing. It's like, could we had a better guest for Mindspace? <laughs> right. All right. We're going to shift gears though. Uh, we have our friend, We Win, no better name. Uh, in the entire world. If I'm going to name one kid, I'm naming them We Win. <laughs> That's so good. We Win. Uh, digital Marketing Executive at Digital.com. And we're going to talk about the days of buying a product and hoping for the best are long gone. Uh, what are we supposed to do with all the varying data points in purchasers, e-commerce, Amazon, etc.? cetera? Uh, the man has run a multi-million dollar business himself. We win. Welcome to Office Hours. Thanks so much, David. Nice to be here. Um, I'm glad you got my name right. Yeah, <laughs> you look, look, well, you got the best name in the world. <laughs> like, I thought Mike Diamond was right, a cool right. name, right? I got Mike Diamond and We Win. Are you We win. That's right. <laughs> Mike Diamond. You're the captain of my football team. We win. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Well, um, I used it's to, ironic, but your, your business uh, is about having everybody win. Oh my God! That's I, 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 yeah, David, love it. So we, you know, explain to us how the landscape of digital marketing has changed uh, because of reviews and other things, as such that we have controlled perspective and controlled environments that can be manipulated. Yeah, I mean, I think that that last point that you made um, was was spot on. I mean, right now, customers or consumers have so much access to information that's out there. They're really shopping on every channel imaginable. So it's they're not just going to Google to go find products, but they're shopping through social. They're shopping through mobile apps. Um, they're you know the 
word of mouth from friends and family, which um, was a key factor in the past from people doing business with each other. It's just the familiarity of family and friends. Now that's been magnified, you know, a, a thousandfold, right? With the access to information that's out there and everybody just being around. So this is nothing new um, where, uh, you know, companies have looked to customers to provide reviews on their products. But now it's even more important just because the information is just so readily available and the businesses really need to communicate and be a part of that conversation on each of these different channels that uh, people are focusing on. So um, digital.com, what we did was we actually surveyed about 1,250 people. Um, and these are everybody here demographics wise is in America and they're adults, online consumers. And we found that you know, about 54% of all Americans read online reviews before they purchase. Now, that's not a uh, mind-blowing statement because if you think about um, you know, maybe in your own habits, you're probably saying, well, of course they do, right? But then, so what we did was we just brought this uh, survey out there to really find out you know, what was the sentiment among consumers and how can we you know, take some of this data and provide uh, small businesses, entrepreneurs with some tips and uh, tactics to actually, um, you know, monitor and control the conversation and to help out their customers and really just to accelerate their business into this uh, day and age in online consumerism. Interesting. What's we um, when you get that information and you sift through it and go, you know, put it all together with your team. Is there a common theme more than others with regard to the tips and practices you recommend more often than not? Are there certain things that you see more and more people should be doing? Well, I think probably the number one thing is that um, companies need to pay attention to online reviews and have a strategy to actually do it. In the past, we kind of just left it up to the consumers. We provided them an opportunity, you know, to go to the website, review your purchase uh, through emails, and consumers would go up there and just kind of be on their own to leave reviews. Uh, businesses, you know, nowadays, what we uh, can recommend is that they actually provide a strategy, uh, messages, as well as just opportunity for people to leave reviews. And also monitoring reviews closely is a very important thing, just monitoring customer sentiment. sentiment. There's a lot of times that customers will leave a negative review. We see this on a lot of major websites that are out there that a negative review goes up and then either the company doesn't respond or they respond with a canned message that says, um, you know, we'd love to make your purchase right, uh, contact us and, um, you know, we'll take it from there. But in reality now, I think that because people pay so much more attention to online reviews, they're reading other people's reviews and consumers are looking towards uh, how a customer or how a company responds to their customers. Did they take care of a problem if it was a negative review? If it was a positive review, are they responding back, um, you know, in a non-generic way where they're talking about specifically, um, you know, some of the things that they were mentioned in the review? So there's a tremendous opportunity uh, because we know that people will value online interviews so much more that you know the opportunity is there for companies to you know drive positive customer sentiment about their their company and their products. Have you found because a lot of people are really smart with the algorithms and yeah. they know how to pay for reviews and it sure. boosts up the reviews, but then you get the product and then the customer service sucks. Yeah. So. You know, some people fall into that. You know what I mean? They have a thousand reviews on something and you get the product. You're like, this is garbage. So how do you coach people in that way to say, look, it's good to have reviews, but you still got to be authentic and have a good product. Have you, yeah, you, you seen that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
you know, as David had mentioned earlier, I do have a lot of experience. I've been selling on Amazon for the past nine years, right? So this is probably, you know, exactly what you're talking about. You're going to go to Amazon, search for a product. They've got tens of thousands of reviews and you get the product and you're like, okay, well, this doesn't necessarily represent what I bought. And then, you know, you go back to Amazon. Amazon does a really good job of, they'll take the product back within 30 days. So if you're not happy with it, you know, they take care of it. But why, as a company, would you leave that in the hands of Amazon? You don't own the customer. Here's your opportunity to make these things right for the customer, right? So um, you're right. There's a lot of people and there's a lot of companies out there that they build it uh, into their algorithms and they will, you know, increase bestseller rankings on these third-party platforms um, by review count, by positive review count, by sales velocity, and all these other things. So. Um, you can see that, you know, when searching for things on Amazon, there's companies and brands that you've never heard of, but these guys have like tens, 20,000 reviews and you think it's a good product. And then at the end of the day, when you get it, it may not be there because they've either manipulated the algorithm or they've paid and incentivized reviews. So we, I have two questions. The first is probably, the first is probably most critical to this issue. And it's, where'd you get that painting behind you? <laughs> Hey Dave, you're are you, are you in uh, Orange County? Yeah. Okay. So there's a local artist here. His name's Ali Sabit. He runs a he has a I'm not sure if you're familiar with who he is, but um he he him and I used to work uh in the same co-working office. And I saw, you know, I came in there. This is when co-working there was really no co-working, right, for tech companies in Orange County. And uh, I walked in first day and I saw this guy painting this crazy mural as you get off the elevators. And, you know, I was working for a startup back then. So I'm rolling in with my board shorts and my, my T-shirt. Everyone else in there is, you know, in their suits and everything. And, uh, you know, people didn't really appreciate kind of his art, like all over that thing. And I said, this is really cool. This really vibes with me. And and I said, and I just reached out to him and I said, and he had actually, he had to take down that painting. He had to repaint it after three days. They painted it white. And I said, man, that sucks. So I, I reached out to him and I said, this is a really cool painting. And, um, and I was a new father back then and I said, Hey, my kids would really love a painting like this, you know. And so are you. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. And you know, the thing is, is like I've uh, I made a connection with him, and I've been following him, you know, for I don't know, probably ten years now. And now he's really big in the NFT space as well. So now he's an NFT digital artist, doing amazing things. You know, just as an entrepreneur, I love to follow other entrepreneurs and kind of see their journey. Um, and then if you ever get a chance, go down to South Coast Plaza or something like that. Yeah. I know that he's done a bunch of collaborations uh, with uh, like Mont Blanc and a couple of stores down there where he'll he'll paint specifically like on make limited edition one of ones on their bags and you know hold events and so on. So it's a really cool guy. Ali saw that he also runs a uh, a, a, a branding company called uh, Pixel Pop. So this bunny behind me is uh, kind of the main character of Pixel Pop. That's awesome. I, so my my other question is yeah. I have learned over the years to trust and vet and at a higher level beyond the recommendations and the, and the reviews, uh, there has to be a process to trust and vet the data that we're getting online when we're purchasing items. And, you know, regardless of whether there's 20,000 reviews or five reviews, one being really good, one being bad and the others being middle of the road, what's your best advice on how do we trust what we see and then vet it properly, regardless of what the reviews are, regardless of 
you know, the data points that are available digitally. Is there some secrets of trusting and vetting that we can utilize? Yeah, and I think it's um, the good brands are doing this well, right? The good direct-to-consumer brands. We've seen a rise in direct-to-consumer brands that are out there, and they're really kind of giving these uh, larger, more established companies a run for their money because they start with their story. They connect with their customers, and they have real people reviewing, and you know they're doing it through media, so video reviews. Um, you know, they're actually doing unboxings, using the product uh, more than just like you know a. 30 character review, five-star review on Amazon, but these people have really taken it to the next level. They've enabled and built communities around their products and around their brands. And so they're letting their customers and their community and their tribe tell their story. And I think that's the most effective way um, to, you know, for a company to go out is really, you know, the message shouldn't necessarily always come from you. The message should come from your community and around you. And I think as consumers, we react to that and we purchase from companies that we trust. We've built that trust because we've seen the transparency that they've provided, um, you know, online and in their communication and through their community. And I think that's really kind of the best way to do it. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, obviously if you go through and you look at a lot of the positive reviews uh, or you can sort by helpfulness, right, on any of these platforms, the ones that get helpful votes, the ones that, um, that are just blatantly um uh how do you say it like you know they're, they're just they're just uh you know overly positive short reviews a bunch of people like them you know it's, it's just one of those things that i think that with the ability to upload media the proof is in the pudding and you know it's all out there for you and really you're protected as a consumer like from amazon um or any of the other platforms that you purchase products on if you're not happy with it you can return it so i think that you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, it, you trust in the community, the brand that they built, the messaging. Does it resonate throughout their entire brand, their brand ethos? Um, and it's not just a product that you search for on Amazon that you never heard of. Well, there's no one I know, bigger expert than we win, we all win, we win. Digital marketing. We won here. Digital.com, not a bad domain as well. Uh, and uh, if you want to figure out how best to utilize and make the right buying decisions, uh, reach out. You can reach uh, we win at digital.com. Come back so we all can win and let's get together in person as well. We I really appreciate your expertise and joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you guys so much. Have a great day. You guys, take care. Thank you. All right. All right. So at least you didn't mess up with that phone pictures. You're you're notorious for saying the wrong thing about people's goddamn pictures in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I you were going to say something bad. I was like, oh my God. Quick. Mike, tell them the story. Tell them what All I right, did. So we get on this, we get on the platform and there's a picture in the background. He goes, at the end of the show, I want to know what the picture means in the background. So hmm. we do the whole thing. He talks really deeply about everything. And then he's like, so what, the alien in the background, what's the deal with that? He goes, that's a picture that I painted of my wife. I'm like, I'm getting off. I'm done. Yeah. So I, love the, said, I love the dude. alien picture. I love the alien picture behind you because I painted that on my wife. I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh, what planet is she from? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> hey, I, no offense taken. Uh, I've known you. Oh we're going to bring God. on the great oh. Joey Gracia. That's just for you, man. We're, we're in the New Jersey realm. Yes. Co founder, co CEO of Chef, which is an S H E F. Uh, and, you know, I want to start off, Joe, uh, Joey, welcome, first of all, to Office Hours. Thank you. Uh, great to see you all. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, we got Likewise. four middle-aged white guys. This is perfect. And uh, <laughs> forget diversity inclusion. Join us in office hours with everyone who looks the same. Uh, <laughs> you like that, Mike? Yeah, I do, actually. It's awesome. <laughs> this Mike's got an accent. All right. No. <laughs> I have two questions again. One, you know, why chef with uh, S-H-E-F? And, you know, what motivated you to start chef? Um, great questions. I'll start with the, the second question first, which leads to the first question. Um, chef, like many entrepreneurs is, is a very personal journey in many ways created to solve a problem for myself and actually my parents. So, uh, Alvin and I as co-founders are both the sons of immigrants. And as you can imagine, being the son, um, of immigrants in, uh, in an Italian household, the best part of growing up was the homemade food at the table every night, uh, had amazing meals growing up. And I always say my journey in food though really began when I left the home. Because when I left the home for the first time, I realized I had no idea how to cook. So I went from eating homemade food every single day to fast food and packaged food every single day. And as you can imagine, that caught up to me. So my sophomore year in college, I ended up being hospitalized several different times. Um, doctors thought I was having internal bleeding, aneurysms, they did spinal taps, all these different things, and couldn't figure out what was going on. And after about six months, I finally met with a dietitian who asked me, what are you eating and what is your routine? And we realized very quickly, being caused by my diet, I was diagnosed with high blood pressure when I was 19 years old. And I was, I was told you need to stop eating packaged food, stop eating packaged food, and you need to start making your own food at home. Having no idea how to cook, I just started making energy bars in the oven. And to be, to be quite honest, they're pretty horrible. Tasted like cardboard at first, but I got pretty good at it over time. Uh, fast forward after college, went to go work at Facebook, helped start a few different teams, stayed on through the IPO, learned a lot. But about six months after I started at Facebook, my mom passed away, very unexpected. And as you can imagine, that was a turning point for me and really reevaluated how I want to spend my time, the impact I want to make, what I'm passionate about. And I become super passionate about the role of food in our lives. And I saw this play out in my life and now my mother's life. And so started my first food company a decade ago now, uh, 2011. And simple concept where we'd sell these baked energy bars I used to make for myself. And every bar we sold, we would feed someone in need, partner with the World Food Program, the United Nations and other organizations to do this. Ran that company for seven years and ultimately sold that company in 2017. Not because it was a good time to sell and make a bunch of money, to be honest. I, I sold the company because I realized we weren't making the impact we set out to make. We thought we were going to transform the food industry and improve everyone's health. And if, if I realized anything, it's, it's two things. One, packaged food was not going to solve the problem. And two, the food system in the U.S. was far more broken than I thought it was. Um, coming from Silicon Valley and Facebook and jumping into the food system, you're used to fixing things that are broken in Silicon Valley. Everything was broken in the food system. and no one was fixing it. We're doing differently than we're doing in the U.S. because whatever we're doing with food in the U.S. is just not working. And the most interesting thing I found was that these small communities around the world, in many cases, were barely making ends meet, even though, and we're the most affluent population and supposedly in the world back in Silicon Valley, but they're eating far higher quality diets than we're eating. And when you dug in to understand how they're able to do this, it was always some type of community-based food system where they're sharing food with one another in their communities, which led to more accountability, transparency, economic empowerment, and ultimately better, better options for the consumers, more affordable, higher quality options. So 
you know, thought this idea for Chef, thought, hey, you know, why can't we bring this back to the U.S. and share food with one another in, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, dug in, realized very quickly the regulatory landscape around doing this was very disabling. And so I was super fortunate to meet my now co-founder. We actually met in Israel while I was traveling on a social impact program. He was working in the White House at the time as a regulatory attorney and a senior tech advisor for Obama. A few months later, I went to go visit him in D.C. I saw the same idea on his whiteboard when I walked into his apartment as I had. And I think we decided that weekend we were going to do this. And we filmed our YC video in D.C. that weekend. And the two reasons why we really started the company. One, we realized that consumers like us who had no idea how to cook need better options, more affordable, high quality options. And everyone should have access to a homemade meal. And two, and the, and the driving reason for the company and the reason why we call the company Chef was we realized how impactful this would have been for our parents and people like our mothers, right? They came here not knowing the language, no education. I'm very grateful to be the first person in my family to go to college. So my parents didn't have that opportunity. Um, and because of that, they, they struggled to make ends meet many times throughout our lives. Um, but the one thing our parents did better than anyone was cook homemade food, right? The best Italian food I've ever had it's not at a restaurant. It's at the dinner table. It's my mother's. It's my Nona's food. And so um, we realized that this would have been impactful for our parents. There's probably millions of other uh, parents that would be uh, impacted by this and, and it could help. So uh, speaking of diversity, that's why we started the platform. Over 80% of our platform is uh, women, women and people of color, uh, people like our parents who came here for a better life. And uh, we called the company Chef because we wanted the word she to be in it as an homage to our to our mothers right. and also because we want the platform to be all about our chefs so that's why we call the company chef that's an amazing answer and congratulations man i love everything about that you know my i married my wife is european and uh, the first time i went to to portugal uh 19 years ago to this small village where they they supposedly have nothing uh, i had some of the best food in my life right at, at these peasant tables and it was real food and it was whole food and it was healthy and it was delicious so i absolutely love what you're what you're doing my question is because so many people don't know in this country i agree with you is it hard to educate them is it what do you find the resistance to be like because a lot of people shop out of convenience right it's just grab what you can and go and, and how can more people learn um, the benefits of, of chef? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, you know, unfortunately, over the past, I would say 100 years, mostly since the Industrial Revolution and, you know, the invention of preservatives in the 50s, like uh, we've, to your point, we've lost our connection with food here in the U.S. And, and we eat just to eat and we don't eat out of love and connection. And because of that, um, there's a misalignment of um, expectations and, and incentives, right? So when you're just eating out of necessity, the entire food system is now positioned to just feed you. And the, the, the bar for quality is just, it's not even there anymore. And when you go sit at someone's dinner table and your mother is feeding you or your friend is feeding you or this person that you know in Portugal is feeding you, um, the, the, the experience is different. The incentives are different because of that the quality is just much different. I think you know, it's going to be a slow transition, I think, for people to go from eating out of pure necessity to eating for quality and connection. Um, but I think that starts with building community, frankly, which is what we're trying to do. Once you hear the stories of these chefs um, and when the pandemic happened, this was so much more powerful. When the you know, pandemic started, we were just in the Bay Area. I flew out to New York last June in the middle of pandemic. We launched New York in, in July of last year. You had Michelin star chefs cooking on the platform who were furloughed indefinitely. Um, 
You had Broadway actresses cooking on the platform. You had people who used to cook on movie sets and movies were no longer being filmed. So they were out of work. And when we, we, would, film, we would film these stories. So if you go on our site, you can actually watch um, stories. You can read bios. And when you hear these stories um, and, the, and the reason why these people are, are making this food, I'll give one example. This person who used to cook on movie sets, um, he cooks comfort food that's all vegan. And the reason he does that was because he was diagnosed with cancer, but he loved like sloppy joes and hamburgers and macaroni and cheese. So he made all these recipes vegan so that even with cancer, he could eat these recipes. And when you hear this, you just want to try it. And to be honest, like his mac and cheese and his sloppy joes are incredible, right? Um, but I think that we're, we're missing this connection with our food. And that's the biggest thing we're trying to bring back with Chef is that connection between the person cooking your food and the person eating your food. And, and to be honest, that's a, it's a different marketplace than Uber and Lyft or, or others, right? Because for these chefs, like this is their love language. When they're cooking for you, this is not just a job or a way to make a, make a buck, right? They actually, this is their love language. They're nourishing you and they want to know who you are when they're sending you their food. So um, you're right. It's going to be, it's going to be a long path, but we think it's one worth being on. I agree. That's amazing. Um, when I go back to Australia, I never have any, I have ulcerative colitis. I never have any stomach issues because the quality of food is so good. Do you feel that it's laziness or just people cannot manage their time correctly when it comes to taking the time to eat? Because people, we, Americans scoff their food. We overeat. I carry a food scale when I travel because I oh, order. Yeah, you thought it was a drug scale back in the day it was. <laughs> because when I order room service, my stomach's bad. I have to weigh my food and I'll get a piece of chicken that's 15 ounces. I'm like, what the hell is this? So do you think, what do you think that is? Do you so, think it's people are lazy or they don't prioritize their time? Yeah, I, I don't think, I think people are busier than ever. And, and because of that, they don't have time to cook. If you guys cook at all, um, I've tried to learn. It's very, very time consuming between going shopping for ingredients. Well, you have to plan the meals, you have to go shopping, you have to bring it home, you have to cook the food, you have to clean up, which the cleanup takes just as long as cooking the food does. It, 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 it takes a lot of time. And, and, and with people working more than ever, longer hours than ever, and especially you know families that have two working parents, um, it is very difficult. And so the options that people have had until now are they want something that is going to be like fast, quick, and easy, and they want something that's affordable. And before, I mean, the options you really had were, were kind of crappy food, right? You ordered fast food because it's cheap and affordable and it's fast. And, or you go on DoorDash and you order from a restaurant and you're paying 20 or 30 bucks a meal with delivery and tip and service fees and everything else. And so, or the, the lucky few in our society do have private chefs. So people who have enough money do have people like chef cooking for them and they put food in their fridge every week or they come to their home and cook for them. We're, we're, we're basically democratizing the private chef, right? These are individuals cooking meals freshly on your delivery day for you. But, you know, a private chef, we looked into this, costs like 50 to $70 a meal. You know, DoorDash, you're paying 20 $25 a meal. On chef, you're paying 8 to $12 a meal. So you're paying 10 bucks for a full meal this is something you can actually feed your family, right? You can't feed your family DoorDash every single day. One, it's very expensive. And two, it's not very healthy to eat restaurant food every day. So 
uh, with Chef, because there's no overhead costs of you know everything restaurants and on-demand delivery deals with, um, you can eat for about half the price of the other platforms. It's still quick, it's easy, it's convenient, um, and actually affordable to do. Brilliant. Yeah, Joey, I love the way that you're making food medicinal instead of a disease. And, you know, that's the major coming from my family immigrants as well. I know Mikey's family immigrants all from all over the world, all of us. And, you know, there was something about the way you feel. I uh, build villages in Africa with the Unstoppable Foundation. And I was amazed that I could eat in the Monsamare in Kenya, organic farms that we, you know, have harvested and created there and come home feeling better with less body fat on me than I live in Orange County, California. You know, it's probably one of the wealthiest spots in the entire earth in Newport yeah. Beach. And I can eat better in the Masamari than I can on Bubble Island is incredible. That's what Steph, I think, really brings to us is, you know, it's not just the health aspect medicinally, but also the mindset side of being able to eat what's right and the effects it has on the mind, body, and soul. So I really appreciate how things have evolved and how you took uh, the struggles and the strife of chefs during the pandemic and turned it into a brand new way that we can help make food medicinal again instead of a disease. So thank you so much. We look forward to supporting you. Check out Chef. That is S-H-E-F dot com. Great, Joey Gracia. Surprise you don't cook yourself, but uh, appreciate the fact that you hire a lot of chefs to cook for us. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Look forward thank to trying thank you. Thank you. Me. Take care. Tell your mom we're coming over. Yes. I will. Thanks. <laughs> right. Bye. Cool, right. I, I was surprised how cheap it is. I mean, inexpensive. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought he was going to tell me it was in between Uber Eats and uh, and, and, and also I'm sorry. Sorry for pre uh, supposing the Coke scale was uh, for. Uh, Dude, come on, Melsa. Really? Do I really take you personally? Working out. I, I Dave, it's for my creatine. Actually, look, Mike. Look, I, when I travel, I know creatine. Not me. I, I travel with uh, Minefield Diamond Mine Life. I got it all. When I go through the actual security, I have to pull all the supplements out. The lady goes, "I'm not going to check you. You can't be that bold to have all that stuff. <laughs> Just go through." She did. I put I a whole train. I didn't in sight. I didn't play in sight like those big solar facilities in Nevada. I know right? they were calling yes. a beacon due to aliens. Anyway, speaking of aliens, we are still on track. We have a good friend here, the director of global media ecosystems and partnerships at Globo GPP. That's globalpartnerprogram.com. Carlos, welcome to Office Hours. How are you? I'm doing very good. So nice to be here. Nice to be with you guys. How are you, David? How, how are you, Mike? We're amazing. Yeah, Mike, and, uh, Mike and Mike and Dave. You know, yeah. you, you are sitting in, in a very sweet spot in the media world. And I thought maybe you would give us a quick background about the Global Partner Program. And uh, you might even have a question for Mike, Mike and myself. Sure. Uh, let's go for it. So uh, thanks for the, the time here. Well, uh, I was born and raised in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I have eight years in the U.S., if I sum up everything. Uh, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. Uh, I founded a, a sports media company in Brazil that was acquired by uh, Warner Media. I ran that company for 11, uh, 11 years up to the acquisition moment. I ran Twitter Latin America, the media partnership side, for four years and moved to the Bay Area uh, recently, actually three years ago. Uh, well, recent because of COVID. <laughs> uh, yes, three years, actually, year and a half. Uh, 
in a more normal uh, life. Uh, and then I uh, founded a VC and I've been investing directly into companies. I went to Stanford, did a bunch of stuff. And then Global reached out. I, uh, right. I run their ecosystem partnerships uh, uh, program, uh, connecting with the Corp Dev initiative they have. I've been connecting media tech and advertising tech companies uh, to their core business and sharing that deal flow with Global Ventures. So, uh, so that's kind of the background information, right? So I'm, I'm kind of uh, breaking the ground here for uh, uh, global, connecting global, not only with the ecosystem here, but also in Israel, in Asia, uh, really make, uh, uh, enabling global to evolve from an era where they would either buy companies or develop themselves to you know, a, a, a reality where they have to belong to a larger and global ecosystem through partnerships and through, you know, minority stakes and, and, and stuff like that. So my question to you guys really around that, you know, one from a global perspective, and I know how familiar you are with global, right? Global is this huge uh, media conglomerate in Brazil, largest media group in Latin America with free-to-air, pay-TV, pay-per-view, website, third uh, uh, internet destination in, in, in Brazil, so all over the place. And uh, so facing the, the challenges of a, a legacy company, per se. So my question one is regarding from a global perspective, uh, what it takes for a company like Global to actually belong to a global ecosystem, a, a global media ecosystem, and really, you know, be part of the, the game, right? So that's one. Uh, so what, what would you think would be the first things to do in order to better connect and to have the right relationships in an ecosystem like the one we live here, especially in California? Uh, and then question number two is from a, a, a partner company perspective, if you see any major milestones for companies to reach in order to start testing international experimentation and, you know, trying to expand into, into you know, emerging markets like Latin America. You know, uh, we are talking about 660 million people with global by itself having 110 million user IDs, you know, global IDs, we call it. So just would love to hear you guys on, on those two uh, uh, angles there. Yeah, you know... Voltar, eu falo um pouco português, Carlos. Opa, que beleza. Sim, eu suppose é português. So, yeah, no, I think that the, uh, I think, you know, it's what Dave always says, the truth vibrates the fastest. And, and for as big as the planet is and as big as our, these companies are that we're working with, the smaller they really are too, right? So authenticity is what's key. Uh, that's what you need, regardless of, of what company it is and what country you're in and how many people you're working with, because ultimately that's what resonates. And, and the companies are just extensions of the individuals that are part of it. And the authenticity is the biggest part of that. Awesome. I, I, I'm going to go, Dave always says the what first. I think the why, you have, if you don't, what's your mission and what's your purpose and how are you bringing value to wherever you're dealing with? And I think going off what Mike said as well, being you know authentic, but having that aligned purpose that brings value to whoever you're dealing with, then spreads really quickly. And then Dave always says, you know, make sure you know your what and then your how. But like, get your why right because if your mission and purpose is aligned with truth, and people will resonate with that. 
And then to, yeah. to yeah, no, to add to what you guys are talking about, I think there is a pragmatic sense when we talk about the what. And when we're looking at entering emerging markets, building a community, and monetizing that community, uh, it's really important to understand the skills uh, that we have with our offering and the knowledge of not only what, but also who, uh, especially in the global uh, spectrum and arena, working through myself, media and esports. Uh, with our TV shows, movies, and uh, different content that we have, which is distributed in Latin America, in India, in the UK, uh, Australia as well, and New Zealand, that it becomes really important to know not just the authenticity, uh, but that frequency itself of how the skills, the knowledge of the one and who are aligned with, synergistic to or supplementary of the regionalization of the globalization, right? Each individual spectrum of communities have different needs uh, where different skills and knowledge uh, have different values. And so not only must we find out and look internally at our solution and, okay, here's the exact skills and knowledge of what to do and the capabilities of what we have, but here's how it is synergistic, supplementary, or aligned with this certain market. And then what is our capability of articulating that value? I think the last step that I'm talking about is the most overlooked that because we have to put so much effort, time, money, and value into developing the skills, the knowledge, the desire, those capabilities that we forget that if we don't communicate it effectively, let me give you an example. I see so many SaaS solutions that 90% of the solution is a waste because they've forgotten the last component of okay, what's the articulated value of my SaaS solution in order to exceed what I'm asking for when 90% of the solution may exist just in the PIM application? Uh, you know, even with the phone industry today, the PIM applications utilize the majority. If you take the camera and the PIM application, the personal information management side of a phone, you know, you're looking at the majority of the use, but yet we lose focus in on the skills, the knowledge, the desire, how it's regionalized, synergistic, supplementary, or aligned with the spectrum of people that exist in Latin America, or in the UK, or in Australia, New Zealand, or in Asia. Uh, and there are differentiators. So I think building one by one, looking internally at what our capabilities and frequency, being authentic to ourselves, as Mike says, also knowing our why. I, I do say apply your why, to the what, the who, the how. So uh, I think that's an essential part of anything you do is to apply that why. But I think, you know, you got to get that alignment, synergy and supplementary, and then make sure that you're capable of articulating value in that region or else it doesn't matter how great the solution is, it's never going to uh, get the adoption that you want. Yeah, no, uh, all great points. I think that, you know, we, we are in the process of qualifying our funnel. We've, you know, we've been dormant, actually not talking too much about what we are doing for about a year, but we've been able to build this pipeline with over 800 companies. We've signed over 100 NDAs and we have 30 POCs running. So we have uh, made a, a presence with companies, especially from the Bay Area, uh, nevertheless, I think it's time now for us to qualify that pipeline. Uh, wh what we are actually bringing to the table is the possibility uh, uh, to uh, accelerate growth of companies, not only startups, but scale-ups, unicorns, public companies. 
uh, by you know a, a single partnership to access an entire uh, market uh, in a very efficient way. And uh, I, I, I feel like we, we've spent a lot of energy in the past year, good energy, it's resulting on, 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 on good uh, work. Nevertheless, we, uh, uh, the intention is really to qualify and bring those very you know, best companies. Feels like almost like we are in that VC competition fighting for the very best you know, uh, companies in the market, but everybody wants to partner with them. So uh, uh, I would expect like, you know, tips almost like from a, a VC standpoint, how do you access the very best deals so that you can bring those, you know, uh, uh, excellent companies to the table to uh, uh, so that they can seize the opportunity in a market uh, uh, like Latin America? I think it's less about Latin America, but really about the numbers, right? When you think about China today, companies from China, they are really going after Latin American market just because, you know, uh, uh, there is so uh, uh, so much ground to break and a lot to learn there, and they are making a huge advancement. So I, I'm thinking here in this ecosystem, how really to access those best deals. But I, I think a bit of, you know, of what you've said already address that, right, if you, if you agree. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, no, that's it. Thank you so much. Muito obrigado, Carlos. Até logo. Obrigado você. Melhor forma de aprender o português é com uma, uma mulher brasileira. Sim, ela é português. Ok, thank you so much. Nice being hey, here. Carlos, nice to meet you. We'll see you soon. Tchau. Best of luck. He's killing it. I love the way you casually said it. I went to Stanford and oh, yeah. one of the other things. Uh, yeah, I can see your eyes, Rob, when someone says Stanford. <laughs> yeah, you know me. I'm like, I want to go to Stanford. Such a hater. Maybe it's that twitch when somebody drops that biscuit. Someone says anything with Ivy League or Stanford. You get yeah. yeah. You know, I went to school in Boston. <laughs> then he always, you know what he says? But they always get me to talk there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They pay me to speak, Mo. I got it. All right, boys. This incredible guest lineup is we're moving city to city, back on the road, making it happen, being kind to our future selves, doing a lot of good deeds. What's your takeaway for the day, Mikey D? You know, it's really funny. The first two guests, they both suffered some kind of trauma and pain to pivot. So I'm saying this to anyone watching, you don't have to suffer the trauma and pain to be happy, find your purpose and get on with your life. So wherever you are right now, just take the step forward with gratitude and positivity and move forward. Don't wait for the pain as an indication to, to do something great. Yeah. And for me, it's, um, you know, garbage in garbage out and, and that's an adage for life, right? So with Shauna, you, you look at the thoughts that you're putting in and uh, if, you're, if they're not the right ones, you're going to have the, the results of that. Mindfulness is a cure to that. And we win. We saw what he's doing. If you do provide good service and you get great reviews and if not, you're going to have to deal with that. And with Joey, quality of the food. So garbage in, garbage out, or great things in, great things out. I love that. Uh, it, it's difficult for me on the on the takeaway because usually there seems to be like a, a very common theme. And I, you know, always try to tie in, you know, is this going to be mindfulness? But that didn't work for me. Uh, you know, being, you know, in that e-commerce side, was it now about, uh, you know, what, what kind of uh, reviews that we're getting with, with WeWin or a new business model. But I think what came to light um, in talking with Carlos is that we have to find inside of us uh, to produce and innovate and execute outside of us. That each of these people, not just with the trauma, 
that what they found uh, in their business was found inside of them. You know, it was very obvious with Shauna, with WeWin, you know, being able to, to look within it and talk about this idea of trusting and betting with so many different data points. Uh, and then Joey, of course, uh, I think we all had our eyebrows raised when he talked about, I made it chef. And, and I really didn't know why I made it chef, but when he said to honor she, uh, and I think, you know, that that is so important of how they looked within their own personal experience and created these successful businesses outside of themselves. Just because you have a great idea doesn't mean it's a great business, but it's a great place to start a business and then ask for help to execute, expand, uh, accelerate brand, and uh, of course scale like Carlos is the closer, uh, because I think that's what he, to me, ties it all together is that, you know, they all look within, but in the end, you know, there's a million great ideas. If you can't take it to market, what good is it? And that's where that last part of articulating the value from within to share outside of ourselves. All right. Thank you, boys, for joining me. We appreciate you, Mikey D, for sharing the stage with the other Mike. He's kind of, it's a diamond sandwich here with Mikey Molo uh, in the middle. Oh, boy. Anyway, uh, thanks for joining, guys. Uh, we will be back tomorrow, as always, with Office travels. Uh, today is more good news Wednesday and every day I get to see Mike Mamola and Mike Diamond on the same day. Absolutely. It's more good news. It's the double mic version of office hours here with David Meltzer. You can reach me, David at D Meltzer. You want my ebook, my honor book, you want a signed copy. Let me send you a book. Let me send some Mikey Diamond minefield. That's no problem. If you want me to help Matthew Mendoza make his bed, that's not a problem either. David at dmeltzer.com. Remember most importantly here on office hours, be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks. Bye-bye.